Welcome to Lab Chats, a podcast from the team at LabStats. I'm Tyler Jacobson, your host for today's episode. Each week, we'll sit down with technology leaders in higher education to get the latest buzz and insights while we discuss current events, trends, problems, and solutions. Now let's get into it. We are joined today on Lab Chats with Sky, who is the Esports Academic Task Force at University of Hawaii. And we want to have a conversation about the uh, 2021 Overwatch League event. So, Sky, do you want to give a little bit more information about yourself, your background, and then we can dig into uh, an in-person esports event in 2021? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, thank you, uh, Tyler, for having me on your on your podcast. Uh, I'm Sky Kapaloa. I'm a PhD student at the University of Hawaii, and um, I basically um, uh, sort of lead the charge I- at the university in uh, supporting and creating our program along with my, my assistant, Kevin Nguyen. And um, this is a, you know, an endeavor that the university has been really excited about for, for the past couple of years. And um, it kind of kicked off because um, they found out that I actually do esports research. Uh, and so that's not something that's quite common. I mean, of course it is growing um, as an academic topic, but I specifically look at um, the growth of esports on college campuses. So I have a collegiate focus and kind of, you know, the whole sort of gist of my research is to look at student development through um, the culture and lived experiences of of players um, as though they were sort of like athletes in that sense. Um, And so, you know, that's where this this whole sort of endeavor that um, got me sort of uh, whirlwind into this began. And I know that research or that esports is is a fairly new thing, you know, less than a decade old as far as it being as big as it is. I've seen articles where there are um, there are schools that have training programs just like in athletics, and and mm-hmm. there's hours of practice that they have to put in, and so that is really interesting. and And I hope we have a chance to circle back to some of that mm-hmm. um, initially. I wanted to chat with you because you have had a live in-person event. So you were able to do that 2021 Overwatch League championship in person. Was that something that kind of fell into place or were you always planning on it that way? Did you have a fallback plan on to do it remote? What did that look like? Yeah, so our partnership with the Overwatch League was, you know, a pretty surprising event to to put it frankly because um, you know, for a very long time, the University of Hawaii um, has been looking for a space to hold our events, to have a, a permanent location for our program, and to have a location in which students can gather and, and, and collect on campus. Of course, COVID um, tossed that into the air um, and has really sort of disrupted the idea of, you know, face-to-face gatherings on campus. But at the beginning of the year, Overwatch contacted the University of Hawaii asking if it was possible to hold an event on campus. And again, it was very shocking. Um, never did we imagine that there would be a huge debut of, you know, uh, uh, event in esports as big as the Overwatch League happening on a university campus. You know, we always imagined this being something in, a, in our stadium. We have a, a stadium called Aloha Stadium that is a, a proper sports stadium. And so for them to contact us and say, you know, um, We'd like to do that, but not at your stadium, but on your in your iLab um, was was a bit confusing to to say the least. Because I had thought, you know, okay, 
is this going to be sort of a mega event? Is this something which spectators can come and sit and watch? Uh, but from, from their point of view, that was not the case. They wanted simply a location on campus in which they could hold um, two teams to play a tournament. And so when we thought about it that way, we were thinking, okay, then that might be possible. That might be something we could do. And that kicked off conversations about, you know, where would they be located? So we have two teams. And again, this is a professional league. So for those of you that are not familiar with Overwatch, this is um, the Overwatch League. This is a league that was created by um, Blizzard Entertainment and Activision uh, um, uh, Entertainment as well. Is They wanted to create a actual esports league from the very beginning with the game Overwatch. Right, so that's the fact that they play in formatted schedules, um, min minimum salaries, benefits. Um, so there was this idea that this was not just something, sorry, I have chickens in the background here. Um, <laughs> this is something in which it was intended to be mimicked as if it was a, a professional basketball, baseball league itself. Um, they, have, they actually were creating um, city-based teams, right? So it wasn't sort of just global esports, but you had Dallas, um, you have Seoul, you have Shanghai, right? It's a global network of Overwatch teams. And what they wanted to do was to actually bring two North American teams to Hawaii um, four times out of the summer to play against uh, Chinese and South Korean teams, right? So from our iLab, they would actually play on servers in Japan against South Korean um, and, and, and Chinese teams against, again, the same servers, they connecting to the Japanese server itself. So for them, this is not so much like, again, a mega event. This, is, this, is, this was not something that which they were looking for spectators, but essentially the league was trying to bring North American teams closer to Asia, right? And so that was the key here is that Hawaii became that, that pivot point, that, that, that central location. As, as sort of Hawaii always has sort of understand itself to be sort of this, this bridge between East and West, um, they wanted to literally bring the players as close as possible. Because again, when you're running a global league, you have this, this, this problem of latency, right? So transmission rates need to be equalized as much as possible. Nothing can be perfect, but you need to get as close as possible to, to um, a, a level playing field. And so suddenly Hawaii became part of the conversation in that sense. So how did that look? It sounds like they kind of reached out to you guys almost out of the blue. How long did it take to put it together and what were some of the major obstacles you ran into? Yeah. So it was kind of sort of out of the blue because um, our women's basketball coach was at a global innovation zoom session with a representative from Overwatch as well. And so, you know, when I, when that Overwatch representative knew about the Hawaii uh, coach, um, who was actually participating in that Zoom session. I mean, again, they're already entertaining the idea of Hawaii. So once that person knew that our women's coach was there, they just started to strike up a conversation and say, you know, oh, you know, we're looking at Hawaii. And so the coach, of course, knew that we have a collegiate esports team and program that is, you know, um, um, just beginning. And so they directed conversations toward us. But really across the board, it was a, a sort of multi-departmental uh, collaboration to get this kicked off. Um, athletics, um, information technology uh, center, um, legal, of course, and UH Esports, our collegiate program, all were collaborating for about four to five months to really get this through. And so in, on that level, it's sort of unprecedented as, as to how much 
um, um, cooperation the university had to have among these different uh, entities on campus to really make this a success. Because again, it wasn't one, just one sort of, you know, particular person or department that made this happen. It was multiple. You've mentioned a couple of times the athletics department is is kind of the beginning of of the conversation, and then that they were involved in the planning and and setup of this. How does your esports team and the athletics department? How do they uh, relate, and how do they interact? Um, right now, it is a, a, a situation in which they are supported from the outside. Um, so a, a lot of collegiate programs, esports programs. You know, in the beginning when these programs began, so the first one is in 2014 at Robert Morris University, that directly came out of their athletics program, um, in which one of the directors was interested in actually supporting the students through scholarships at RMU. And so different universities from then on have looked at seeing this as an athletic endeavor. Right. So they're thinking it's esports. The word sports is in it. So it must be sport. Um, and so they immediately assume that athletics would be the natural home to it. And in many ways, athletics is a, a fit for collegiate esports because they do have sort of the institutional knowledge of how to recruit and train players because there are elements of sport that do fit into esports. Um, but at the same time, as collegiate esports has has grown and evolved, um, it sort of has leapfrogged or at least start to straddle different departments beyond athletics. And so that is where sort of the paradigm shift has happened, um, where it is athletics in some parts, but it also is student life and student development. Or it is also, for example, part of an academic uh, uh, department, arts and engineering, or the School of Communications, right? So again, esports itself is such a, a multifaceted faceted project beyond just what we call sports, but really a big part of it is sports media as well and communication and streaming and content creation. And so it does fit into many different options. But for us at the University of Hawaii, um, they're really sort of uh, one of a tripartite of different departments that support us, um, but we are not housed in, in the athletics department. So what facilities do you have for your esports team? Is there a specific designated computer lab? Um, do you have uh, something similar to an arena? What do you guys use for your esports program as far as a venue? Yeah, we use the iLab. And that was one thing that we always wanted to, to have was a dedicated location. But as we know, sort of dedicated locations on university campuses are, are prime, prime real estate and very difficult to get. It's usually a zero-sum sort of operation someone has to leave before you get in and so um for us it was finding that dedicated location and you know we have this iLab this this building right in the middle of our campus which on the outside doesn't shout innovation it has sort of a very sort of humble look on the outside but in in, in, in you know in the inside it's one of the most you know innovative spots on on the campus um or at least one or one of two of innovative spots on the campus and so um, we were able to rent out, or not rent out, but we were able to reserve time during the academic year in which we could have practices, for example, from three to six o'clock or six to nine o'clock um, in the evenings and night times. Um, and that was a key part of how we operated for a good, you know, year and a half um, in terms of having our own location. And again, that location is really important. Uh, the iLab is a very interesting um, space because. Typically, an esports arena is dedicated just for esports, 
So you have a, you know banks of computers, and maybe maybe different banks of computers will be dedicated to different games. Um, and you'll maybe have a streaming section. Uh, you might have a fighting game community section, which is console based. Um, and then you'll have a competitive section for your your varsity teams. And so, in terms of that diversity of 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 activities, that's what would typically look like in a in a collegiate arena. But because we were using the iLab, we actually had access to you know, 3D printing machines, um, you know, virtual reality graphic rendering computers, um, um, graphics design stations. And so when we first went into the, went into the iLab, I was a bit worried because I thought it would be a distraction because again, we sort of want the kids to just concentrate on playing the games. But what ended up happening is that the students would sort of migrate around the different parts of the lab once they became sort of bored of playing a game they would go to the graphics design section and start creating characters or creating logos for the teams and so it actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it did sort of tap into that 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 heterogeneous sort of like interests in technology overall that kids have and so for us looking into the future i would like to continue using that sort of model of of the iLab um, as an esports arena in the future You've made a couple of comments about uh, esports being part of campus life. How has that grown and evolved over time? Is it, it like how people that are involved in esports, not necessarily on your esports team, are there? Is it almost like an intramural type uh, thing where there are people that are on the team and others that get together outside of that and and do these events and, and these activities? How does that fit into the overall campus life and, and student experience? Yeah, I mean, you know, gaming on, on college campuses is nothing new. Um, I just did a book chapter for um, um, a book by Dayong Jin on global esports. And so I did talk about the, the emergence of collegiate esports in North America. And one of the things that we sort of have to recognize is that it, this really is not new. What is new is that universities are officially sort of recognizing these events. And one of the most obvious ways that they're recognizing this is to give them scholarships. Um, that is a very common way of doing that, of, of, of articulating that recognition, um, or at least having varsity teams. But you go back to the very first video game tournament, recorded video game tournament um, ever. And that was the, quote unquote, the intergalactic space wars of 1972 at Stanford University campus. And it's sort of, it's talked about as the first recorded competitive video game tournament, but the Stanford part is usually not talked about or the players are not usually talked about. It's just the fact that there's this first tournament that was recorded and so, sort of interesting. Um, Stuart Brand did a very interesting article on it for Rolling Stone magazine at the time. But again, if you, if you dig a little bit deeper, this was actually a collegiate event and it's not shocking, right? So people indulging in video games on college campuses is something that has sort of been time memorial since technology computer technologies have existed now they've sort of just transitioned into being again recognized formally recognized by student life student campus student affairs and um it's it's progressively gotten more sort of uh formalized right that is the key here is that that is what's taken place is that be, they be, become progressively progressively more acknowledged formalized and, and sort of legitimized in that sense and so that's where you're seeing things in that sense come to come to fruition is that they began as student clubs, teams. Now they have varsity support, varsity recognition. Now they're getting scholarships. 
right? So it really, it, it really is tracking, again, something very similar to collegiate sports and how that has looked like, you know. So that brings up a little bit of the financial side of things, which you're talking about uh, having these clubs and events and um, getting funding for the um, funding for the equipment and scholarships and things like that. Um, how do you see that evolving over the next couple of years? Because the sense that I get is it's be going to become a recruiting tool and a campus sense of pride in a similar way that the athletics departments would have. Has that already happened or is that something that's still building? I think the funding part of it is the funding model is still in, in the works in itself. So these collegiate programs, of course, heavily depend upon sponsorships. That is something that is a sort of a, a, a basic necessity when you have a program is to figure out, you know, who's going to be your sponsor and, you know, some programs are very successful at that. So, you know, UCI was able to do a number of imp important sponsorships with iBuyPower um, and other universities are trying to figure out what does this sponsorship model look like? And the key here is that, you know, these programs essentially um, exist as private public entities, right? They are on a public university in most situations or most, most classifications of a program. They exist on public universities, but at the same time, they are often situated in a way in which they don't want to be perceived as taking money from taxpayers or from the university itself, uh, because there is a heavily entrenched perception that, you know, even though this is exciting and new, the universities themselves are still maybe a little bit reluctant to say that they're going to give money over, especially during covid right, especially during budget cuts with COVID, that they're not prepared to say that they're going to be putting up significant sums of money, but which, you know, these programs don't require significant sums of money compared to if you look at traditional athletics. Um, so university programs or univers university collegiate esports programs really are looking to have that public-private um, um, identity as they move forward. And again, it's, it's, either sort of quote unquote endemic sponsorships from technology companies, from computer companies, right. That we traditionally understand um, for, for sponsors, or it can be lifestyle brands, um, Gillette, um, or it could be sports brands, you know, aren't, you know, using existing sponsorships that universities have um, through that athletics department, like Under Armour or Nike um, or Adidas. Right. So there is, there is this menu of, of options that exist there, but beyond that, there needs to be a way to move away from sponsorships as a long-term way to sustain these programs because they, those sponsorships by themselves are not enough to grow these programs. And these programs do want to grow, right? They do have ambitions to look to be beyond simply a director, a coach, and some players, right? They do want to sort of mimic, to be honest, big time athletics in some, in some way. And so they do see themselves as bringing on, for example, sports nutritionists, um, sports psychologists, right? Um, they, they see themselves as outfitting their programs in these sort of very traditional ways as we see with college athletics. I think that's really interesting in the fact that it is following the athletics model in a lot of ways, almost in lockstep because universities have an athletics department in order to you know, for student experience and student pride and, and recruiting. And, and it's just, 
a matter of prestige. And I'm seeing more and more all the time, the advertising of this school has their esports program and they ranked, you know, you know, top in the nation for this event and and they're building beyond just one like you've got overwatch but you've got rocket league and other other types of things i foresee uh, a day where the esports program is just as varied and just as well funded as potentially the athletics program itself because especially with college kids the chances are that most of them are involved in gaming in some form which means that they're going to gravitate to that as far as their social network and their entertainment and things like that. So uh, it's going to be really exciting to see how that works. Now you had mentioned that the prestige and, and things kind of building as far as gaining popularity, when you had uh, the championship, were there like egos involved? It was like, was it like fame associated with the people that were attending? How did that play out? Was there, because you said it was a professional team, which means that they're probably well-known players and things like that. Was that something that was interesting to watch? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think for us, you know, as a program, but also for the students themselves to be able to be so close to professional players, to have them walk around campus, to have them, you know, talk with us. And we had John Spector, the VP of Overwatch, hanging out in our lab and just shooting the breeze with us. You know, it, that was sort of a normal day of, out of the week for us. I mean, I think that was the, the thing is that it was sort of the, the lack of ego, I would say, that was quite sort of disarming because the Overwatch crew and, and, and John Spector himself were just really, really down to earth, happy to talk with our kids. Um, Adam Mears, who is the comp ops operator for Overwatch, um, he spent two to three hours just explaining what he was doing to our students. Like, this was really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the UH Manoa students to have this much access, to literally have one week of, of unfiltered access to the key individuals that run the tournament itself is just, it's hard to put a sort of like, it's hard to conceptualize like how important that was because I had three or four students literally just picking the brain of, of Adam Mears and just asking him questions in which they've always wondered why is something happening this way? And because Adam Mears has complete back uh, backdoor access to, to the games and to the client itself, uh, the Overwatch client itself, he could answer these questions in a way that just sort of blew these kids' minds. Right. So, you know, the, the Overwatch UH partnership um, is, is, is an internship for these students, right? They actually sign up and get three credits for this internship opportunity. And we haven't even just begun to scratch the surface of how impactful this partnership will be. Right now, we're just running with it. We're just having fun. We're not really thinking about our future right now. But when this, when this sort of like steamrolls us after summer, I think there'll, there'll be a time in which we'll have to kind of come together and collect and sort of understand like what, was this like what does this mean for us because this will really shake up the scene of esports in hawaii right so again when we talk about this partnership it's a very unique partnership in hawaii right we've always been asking ourselves this question of what this what does this mean for esports in hawaii and it's a very unique relationship that i you know i hope we can do again um to be honest uh, next year excellent um so how many people ended up traveling to your campus as far as how big is an overwatch team for instance 
Um, you know, so technically the players themselves are six, right, to an actual team, but they do travel with a crew and that can range any, anywhere between 10 and 15 people. So, you know, that's, you know, six players plus, you know, op, you know potentially substitutes that come with them um, and also a general manager, um, an interpreter, right, um, and the coaches themselves. And the, the interpreter part is very interesting because, again, this is a global esports league with teams from Shanghai, Seoul, LA, Texas, right? Vancouver, Paris, right? This is quite, you know, in, in that global scale of things, New York, but over half of the teams have Korean players, right? South Korean players. So both teams that came to our, to our campus, that one was Florida Mayhem and the other was Dallas Fuel. All of them are South Korean, right, nationals, or majority of them, vast majority of them, right? So they are from South Korea. Um, they're just learning English, right? So a lot, of the, a lot of the admin at the University of Hawaii were kind of shocked because they thought, okay, a team from Florida, team from Dallas, they must be natives. No, they're not natives. They're all South Koreans. And so, again, it taps into this very sort of unique culture of what esports represents as a new form of sports entertainment right it 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 doesn't have these deep global or geographical ties necessarily that we see with traditional sports right what is most important is the competitive excellence of these teams and that's how they're sort of constructed so um yeah it was it was very fascinating to have these teams come in and again most of them being south korean but for us in hawaii you know we're very you know coming from a very sort of multicultural background this is very this is a, this is common for us. This is not unusual. Um, we have a you know a very large South you know Korean community here in Hawaii. Um, tons of Korean restaurants. You know the players were loving it because they were able to sort of indulge in a lot of things that they were not able to in in Texas and and in uh, in Florida. So yeah, it was really awesome to to have that experience. Excellent. Coming back to some of your, you said you do research on mm-hmm. esports as part of your educational efforts. Mm-hmm. Give me a little background of what are you researching? What are you hoping to learn? What are you hoping to um, to be able to share with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially I do um, qualitative ethnographic research as part of my my methods in which I, I spent a year and a half at UCI, University of California, Irvine, um, studying their Overwatch and League of Legends teams. And um, their teams were quite unique because um, they drew heavily from the professional side. So, of course, they had students who were interested in becoming collegiate esports. But they actually, actually had professional players coming back to college. All right. And so when we talk about, like, pipelines, we think about the high school to the collegiate to the professional pipeline. But in esports, you know, you are you are a boomer, right? You are retired at, at 24, 23, right? That's your, that's your prime. That's, that's the end of the day for you. So you have to consider, you know, there is this sort of like serious question of like, what happens to kids? Again, they're still kids in, 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 in many respects, they're still kids because they haven't lived or grown up outside of the context of a, of a team that's taking care of them. What do they do? Right. So my, my research is really looking at sort of the student development side of these teams. Um, yes, they're 
you know, great opportunities. You know, these kids really feel like they sort of won the lottery. It's a unique experience in which, you know, they want to have the experience to have high competitive play, maybe go professional. So I really look at, you know, these internal struggles that they go through in terms of balance, right? So this idea of balancing their their life as students, but also balancing their life as potentially elite professional players or aspiring to be, and what sort of tensions those create. And there's some pretty serious tensions that, the, that these, these um, lifestyles create. Um, and also the creation of these programs, how are they helping students to to think about the world outside of them. So because so many, so many of these students are or have been ingrained in competitive esports for so long, right? Even up until after high school, five, six, seven years, even after that, you know, they have a hard time imagining what they could be beyond competitive players, right? So I do look at these issues of student development. In what ways are they able to sort of author their own lives? Right. Because there comes a point where they have to start to actually step out of that that competitive mind frame and to think about their careers beyond just esports. Something you said there that just I couldn't get it out of my head was you'd almost have a dynamic where you have two channels of entry into your esports program from the retired professional esports athlete to those that came from high school in. And they would almost be mentoring each other in different ways. You would have people mentoring the the pros that are retired as to how to be students. And then you would have right. the students picking the pros brains on how do I succeed as a pro? Where do I go? And it would be a really interesting uh, yeah. exchange between those two demographics. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, exactly. That's what's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's this incredible. idea of, yeah, they don't know how to be a student, right? These older players and there's actually a gulf in the age. So these older veterans may not, feel as close as you would with, you know, somebody that's closer to them in terms of their age. There, there are definitely gaps in, in feelings about, you know, some of these kids being quite young, some of them being quite older, and also some of the students being exceptionally well at their academics and also ex- being exceptionally good at their gaming, right? So there's these unusual examples of people doing both really well, but in most situations, people are struggling with one or the other, with their gaming or their academics, and so there's, there's a lot of jealousy um, as well. And, you know, yeah, but the mentorship is a really important role, right? That, that does play a really important role in all this. Yeah. All right. This has been an exceptional conversation. I look forward to sharing it with our audience. Uh, I appreciate having you on, Sky. Yeah. Thank you so much, Charlie. It was a pleasure talking with you. That's all for today's episode of Lab Chats. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new Lab Chats episode is posted each week. We'll see you next time.